Welcome to the Human Climate Podcast. Carol Smaldino is a practicing psychotherapist and author of The Human Climate, Facing the Divisions Inside Us and Between Us. Our tendency is to demonize or to worship blindly, to be arrogant and or covered by shame and doubt. Her restless spirit has provoked a quest for guests who might help her and us to question our assumptions. Carol invites you into the conversations where she herself has wound up taking her own dives into inconvenient territories. I hope you'll join me for a series of unexpected duets. Hi, this is Carol Smaldino, and welcome to The Human Climate. My guest today is Stephen Drizzen. Stephen Drizzen is a lawyer and a law professor at Northwestern University. He is also the co-director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions. Thank you, Steve, for being here and welcome. So when I first reached out to you, I, I hardly knew anything about false confessions or wrongful convictions, actually. But it's through the podcast and through reading about you and through seeing Making a Murderer and also through seeing The Innocent Man that was based on a book by John Grisham that I started to be able to focus and not only focus, but to identify with some of the stories. And, you know, my idea when I talk about the human climate is that it's through stories that we can often identify and empathize because when we hear about this just cold, let's say, it just feels almost unbelievable. And one of the things I was focusing on as I was, I was going through my notes is in this culture, it's often not considered to be a focus of dignity to have someone be weak. So the idea of how could a person do that, you know, how could they be so stupid or how could they be so weak, I think is something that, you know, we need to look at because as you say, and as others say, this could happen to anybody. We all have a breaking point. So um, first I'd like to ask you, how did you come to this? How did you come to this passion? How did you come to being compelled? How did you come to doing this work? So my passion coming out of law school was really more focused on juvenile justice, representing children who were charged with serious crimes that they may have committed, uh, in many cases did commit, and trying to get for them reasonable sentences if they were convicted. Um, I left law school, I had to pay off some student loans. I worked at a private law firm for five years. I clerked for a federal judge and then a job opportunity opened for me at Northwestern to be a clinical fellow, which meant I got to work with a, a law professor on cases with students and sort of teach them the art of being a lawyer. Um, while representing clients. And about three years into that work, um, I was asked to represent uh, an 11-year-old boy who had been convicted of brutally murdering his 83-year-old neighbor. Um, he had been convicted in juvenile court. There was a huge um, you know, brouhaha about the fact that he couldn't be locked up and sent away to a, a prison because of his age. And uh, when I got the case, he had, he had been convicted and 
we were representing him on appeal. And the very first meeting, I'll never forget it. He had just turned 12, I was sitting across a desk from him. And, you know, I, the first thing he said to me um, was, I said I did it, but I didn't do it. Um, and then I had to try to unpack that, you know? I didn't know anything about false confessions. I knew a little bit about coerced confessions. And what he told me was, is that over time, the police officers broke him down with threats and with promises and with lies. You know, they told him they had his fingerprints on the murder weapon, a lie. They told him that God would forgive him and that they would forgive him. They suggested that because he was just a child, that, that, that nothing serious would, would happen to him. Um, and then they told him that he could go home to his brother's ninth birthday party if he just told them that he did it. And um, I got it. I sort of understood how that could easily manipulate a child into giving a false confession. But I still wasn't there because this confession had all kinds of details that only the true killer would have known. Um, how did he get those details? And he got those details because they were fed to him by the police officers through leading questions, you know. And then you walked into her house and you grabbed her cane, right? Yes. And then you hit her over the head with the cane, right? Yes. That's how this story was created through some back and forth and then rehearsed and adopted by this child who thought he was going home. Yeah. So that was the impetus. I still didn't understand this phenomenon of false confessions. I have to say I was still a doubter. And so I did what I think any good lawyer would have done, which is I started contacting experts around the country. And there were only a few at the time who were working in this field. And then I went a step further and I began researching, collecting newspaper articles, uh, talking to public defenders, gathering hundreds of these stories from around the country, not only of juveniles, but of adults, to get a better understanding of how these kinds of false confessions evolved. Um, and it, it changed the course of my, my career. Um, In your life my life yeah so i think you still have people who would think like nobody would do that nobody would confess to a crime they didn't commit and with that question in a sense is the idea that it seems that a confession is still stronger in the mind of a jury often than actual physical evidence so why would someone could uh, admit to confess to a crime he didn't commit, she didn't commit, they didn't commit? You know, there are a number of reasons why people do that. Um, but essentially, in the most common kinds of false confession, which we call stress compliant or coerced compliant false confessions, is that the interrogator breaks down the suspect's resistance uh, to a place of hopelessness. 
where denial becomes futile, where resistance is futile. And then they give the suspect, you know, two paths. Um, if you confess to this crime, you will get some sort of leniency. The judge will view you as someone who is taking responsibility for the crime. Confession is evidence of remorse. Your pathway through the criminal justice system will be easier on you and your family if you confess. And if you don't confess, you're going to get crushed. The judge is going to hold it against you when you get to court. You're going to have to drag the victim's family through the muck and pain of a trial when we already know that you're guilty. Um, some cases, you'll get the death penalty or life without parole. It's about implied promises or direct promises and direct threats. That usually is the hammer that gets people to confess. And even people who are innocent, you know, when they're in this state of hopelessness, will confess because they think that once they're out of the interrogation, once they get a lawyer, once the case is going to a court system, that their innocence will become obvious to everybody, right? Right. But the power of confession itself is so extraordinary that we have seen cases where people are convicted on the basis of their words alone, even when DNA evidence excludes them as the source of genetic material, for example, in a rape that is found on the victim or in the victim's body. And even where that DNA evidence matches to somebody else who the defendant has no connection to. Um, it's this, this notion that nobody would ever confess to a crime that they didn't commit, right. especially a murder that seems to trump common sense, seems to trump physical evidence or forensic evidence and leads to wrongful convictions. Can you speak to the idea because it, it you know, when you're talking, you're obviously talking about law enforcement lying. And I was really shocked when I read that, I don't know, is it in every state or not, that police can lie? They can lie to children, they can lie to mentally vulnerable adults. Yeah. They can lie to the intellectually disabled, they can lie to you, and they can lie to me. And they can lie during interrogations because the United States Supreme Court, way back in the late 60s, 1969, in a case called Frazier versus Cup, said, the mere fact that a police officer lies to a suspect is not enough to keep that confession out of evidence. Oh, wow. It's just one factor that we have to assess in a totality of circumstances of whether or not that confession is, is voluntary. And given that blessing by the United States Supreme Court, police officers have been lying with impunity to suspects for more than 50 years. And getting true confessions with these deceptions but also getting a lot of false confessions. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about confirmation bias. This, yeah. this idea that, you know, 
have a relative who wrote a paper on bad science and bad science uh, he, he said was having ideas to begin with and getting positive results. So a lot of the journals, academically speaking, wanted those results, so they published the papers. But it wasn't good science because good science is supposed to um, examine false evidence and actually enjoy that because it gets closer to someone getting at the truth. And so from what I understand, confirmation bias is when you have a prejudice but you can correct me. And then you see everything related to that prejudice instead of being open to having new evidence. And as you've pointed out, if one has confirmation bias and you keep haranguing the same suspect, you're taking your mind and attention off a potential real serial rapist, killer, somebody who's out there, you know, as as the person speaking. Um, so can you, you add anything to that? I think confirmation bias is one of a series of errors that take place during the pathway from uh, an interrogation all the way through to a false confession. The first step in this process is what we call the misclassification error. And what that is, is that for whatever reason, police officers are interviewing somebody and they begin to think that that person is guilty. Sometimes it's evidence that someone else has said they might have been involved in the crime. Sometimes it's because they're a family member or the person who called 911, um, or it's because um, some evidence in the course of the investigation suggests that they might be involved in the crime. And so that begins the process of confirmation bias. But what happens is, is that police officers are trained to think that they can look at you, analyze your verbal behaviors, the kinds of words that you use, but also your body language behaviors, and that certain body language cues indicate deception. So if you are holding your arms across your chest in a barrier pose, or you're playing with your hair, or you're shaking your leg, or you're not giving eye contact to the officers, or you're giving too much eye contact with the officers, they are saying to themselves, this person is lying to me. And if they're lying to me, then they must be guilty. And then once that takes place, once they believe that the person they're questioning is guilty, everything that person says becomes confirmation of their guilt, right. not evidence of their innocence. Um, and the more that person resists the conclusion that they are guilty, in fact, the more hardened that bias becomes on the part of interrogators. So they exclude any theories that lead to a conclusion that this person is innocent, and they just reinterpret any evidence of innocence or discount it in order to keep their belief that the person is guilty alive and well. And it's so powerful yeah. that even years later, 
when DNA evidence matches somebody who's a serial rapist or predator, they still believe that the right. person they got a confession from is guilty. Right. You know, I, I, I once had an incident as, as a therapist, I was, I was called to a police um, precinct because someone I worked with uh, had stolen a candy bar, you know, like no biggie, but you know, he had been crying and crying and crying. He was about 12. And we went in together to the police office and uh, the cops started threatening that the parents would have to go to court and the parents would have to do this and this and this. And, and then he said, you know, I don't think, well, he said to him, I don't think that you feel bad, you know, and maybe we need to go to court so you can really feel bad. And I said, excuse me, I'm just going to say that he's really been cried out. And the fact that he's not crying at this instant really doesn't mean he doesn't feel bad. So let's just interrupt that. Now, of course, this was a white community. This was a minor issue. Um, this is privileged. And so he kind of listened, but I get it. I get what you're saying. Um, but speaking of mental health and, and what you just were describing, I, I was struck, and I'm just gonna say the Brendan Dassey case, like I didn't see any, and other cases, let's say, other cases, sure. I saw lawyers for the prosecution, police people, and judges really analyzing behavior that I don't think they had any competence to analyze. And, you know, they decided that, let's say, a confession under duress, at, under, under terrible circumstances, with lies, all the stuff you mentioned, with promises, that a person under duress confessing and then saying, can I go back to school now? That, you know, that a person confessing really meant that he, she had to get it off their chest and it was a terrible, wonderful relief and it was an act of expiation of guilt and all of this stuff. And I thought, who are you? Who are you to be saying this? So, I mean, you know, like not that I put entire faith in forensic psychologists either because they can be biased. I mean, in my own experience, but seriously, where is the mental health field? Well, the mental health field was, was really absent in Brendan's case. There was a, a school social worker who testified about Brendan's intellectual deficits you know, um, his, some of his learning disabilities, um, when the issues about whether his confession should come into evidence were litigated, but that's it. Nobody really tried to get an understanding of why Brendan would have been more suggestible or compliant, or why these particular tactics would weigh much heavily on somebody with Brendan's background. Nobody really talked about his youth and lack of experience in life. None of this stuff was really presented to the courts. And by the time we did, uh, we tried to do it. And um, 
you know, we finally got some traction in this case. We won twice in federal court and we ultimately lost by one vote. Um, so what Laura and I have been trying to do since Brendan was convicted is to really try to tell the whole story and try to get people inside that interrogation room and look at what these interrogators did to Brendan and why the confession was not a voluntary confession, why it was coerced and why it was unreliable. Um, and we're going to be doing that for the rest of you know, uh, our lives or at least until uh, the day Brendan gets out of prison. Just just an aside, you know, for people who have not heard, like I had not heard of Making a Murderer, um, I would urge people to see it because it's very powerful. And also you and Laura have um, a tape, a video of an evening with law students that's accessible to the public. Can you just say the title of that? Do you, do you know it offhand? Uh, I, I, it's been a long time since we did that. There was a... I think what you're talking about is an event that we had at Northwestern, yeah. um, which is um, uh, in which we essentially break down what happened to Brendan. And well, I don't remember so if it's the truth about false confessions or, or. Yeah, I think it's an evening on Brendan Dassey, actually. Um, okay. And I, it, if anybody wants to Google, Stephen Drizzen, Laura Nyrider, Northwestern, An Evening on Brendan Dassey, that's D-A-S-S-E-Y. I think, you know, they'll get it. And I, I think that's also helpful. And um, okay, let me see where I am. Internalized false confessions. Right. Um, so you asked me why some people falsely confess. And, and usually the majority of false confessions are where people just become overwhelmed. They've reached their breaking point and the police officers give them options, one which will lead to leniency within the system going forward and one which will lead to despair. And so innocent people will take the, the lesser of two evils at that point uh, just to bring an end to the intensity of an interrogation. And many think that once the case gets in the court, their innocence will be easy to prove and this nightmare will be over. They're wrong, but it's easy to understand why they might think that. Um, there's a second category of false confessions called internalized false confessions. And really these are in some ways the most fascinating and the most frightening of all false confessions because the tactics that police officers use over time, these tend to be longer interrogations, actually manipulate the memories and the belief systems of suspects. So people who come into an interrogation room knowing that they're absolutely innocent of, of this crime, there's no way they could ever have committed a murder. You know, they love this person who was killed. They're here to cooperate, to help out the police. They actually begin to doubt their own innocence. And it happens because usually these people have um, some kinds of issues that cause them to doubt their own memories. Sometimes they have history of drug or alcohol abuse. 
um, uh, you know, sometimes they, they have traumas in their background, which, which make them think that they might have repressed these memories. And police officers say that to them, you know, could this have happened to you in a blackout? Is it possible that you're, this is just so painful for you that you're repressing these memories? And then the interrogation becomes almost like, you know, what you see in hypnotically induced kinds of um, uh, exchanges. It becomes a practice of getting the suspect to draw out these memories from the recesses of their memory bank, getting affirmation from the interrogators who all the while are shaping and implanting those memories through their questions. And so at the end of the day, the suspect doesn't know what's real, what's imagined. Um, and, you know, usually this is a process that, that once they're out of the interrogation room and out from under the spell of their interrogator, these memories begin to fade but not always. There are still people who have doubts about whether or not they were actually involved in this crime. And so I call this the closest thing to psychological torture that we have yeah. to brainwashing in the interrogation space. You know, it's interesting because um, in my own work, you know, I rely to a degree on empathy. Obviously I have had all the experiences that someone I'm working with has had. But what I find is that almost unconsciously, I'm drawn to getting closer to something that I can identify with. And what I actually was thinking about is when I first went to therapy, I was 22. Uh, the analyst was, you know, posh and fancy, and I was really vulnerable. I was with the wrong guy. And I'm at the second session, he, he looked at me and he said, you know, you hate your mother. Oh. It was like, I don't hate my mother. Maybe I love hate my mother. Maybe I have mixed feelings towards my mother. But it's like he had so much power in my eyes that I just was silent. And I stayed in that therapy. I don't even want to tell you how many years I stayed. I was part of a group. I was part of a group that tried to convince other people when they wanted to leave that they were doing the wrong thing. And so, and the other thing is that I, I've, I've coined this phrase that, you know, called the bully, that I called the bully and the brain freeze. Because I had seen, I had seen in friends, actually, women in particular, um, a situation where they were, they were with the wrong guy. They were with the guy who just kept blaming them for everything. And you know, they'd say something like, well, he says, he says, and I thought, what is wrong with these people? Why don't they just leave? And then I thought, wait a minute. I, I got a hold of this idea that if somebody is traumatized or put into doubt in a certain arena, and then along comes somebody that really echoes that, that really gets to that nerve, that person freezes. So you get these really intelligent people and that's what happens. So like, how could that woman, she's, she's a lawyer, she's a doctor, she's this, she's so astute. 
how could she fall for that? And what I've learned is that if somebody is vulnerable in a particular place and somebody with, with power who, who represents, it doesn't have to be a police person, but someone who represents an early authority figure comes and echoes that doubt, the person can kind of crumble. So that's really humbling. And I think, again, uh, I'm kind of getting to the end, but because I want to ask you about a couple of cases, but um, I think the idea of giving dignity, of, of, of not giving dignity, of um, assuming dignity, of recognizing the dignity of vulnerability for real, you know, for real, it's messy and it can be weak and it's not pretty and it's, it's, it's not poetic, but we're all capable of it. And, you know, we have a culture of the strong in many ways. Like, so I, th I think we need to look at that. That's just a pitch for that. So let me, I, I, let me just say, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, one of the things that drove me crazy about Brendan's case, for example, is that, you know, when you, when you think about the police interrogation process, and this is true in many cases, you have hard-charging detectives who are in uncomfortable spaces, in a room with the door closed, in the face of suspects, raising their voices, yelling, pounding on tables, pointing their fingers at people. Um, and people can understand why somebody might break under those circumstances. But that's just a small piece of it. You can be just as authoritative and persuasive and compelling and manipulative if the person is in a soft sofa like Brendan Dassey is, if they're using a, a voice that is calming and soothing and affirmative. Doesn't it, 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 you know, those kinds of Svengali's can do just as much harm as, as somebody who's being abusive. And so the, the detectives in Brendan Dassey's case and the state kept saying, well, look, he's in a very comfortable sofa. You know, they're not, there's a table between them. They're not raising their voices. They're not yelling. And, and we had to try to disabuse the courts and judges and prosecutors that that stuff doesn't matter that much, right? These detectives were as manipulative, if not more manipulative, with their soft shoe techniques as many detectives are when they're more abusive. No, I get it. And, and it's, it can be almost hypnotic. You know, the soft, it's like a lulling you know, almost like singing someone a lullaby. We know you're a nice kid, Brendan. We know yeah. you want to go to your family, Brendan. We know you wouldn't have done this without blah, 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 blah. So I get it. Yeah. So can I ask you about a couple of cases? Please, please. So Billy Wayne Cope, do you want me to read what I wrote or do you want to? No, tell me what you wrote. I mean, this is a case that uh, I'll be hard sick about for the rest of my life. So uh, his daughter, Amanda, was ass assaulted sexually. Mr. Cope was questioned 650 times 
and then told he failed the polygraph. He begins to ask himself if he was mistaken. He then was so broken down by the investigation, interrogation, that when the police threaten him with execution, he feels almost like, let it come. He confessed to whatever was suggested to him. Seven months later, they found someone with a DNA match. And in those interim months, that said James Sanders continued to rob and rape. Billy's wife died before she could know for sure that he was innocent. And I think that you said that this ranks as up there with the worst miscarriage of justice that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, so we're in South Carolina. We're in Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, the deep South. And um, Billy Wayne Cope is a very religious uh, Bible um, thumping uh, white man um, who's very poor and living in, 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 a, in a home that is, you know, falling apart with his three daughters and his wife. And he wakes up one morning, his wife is at work and he goes to wake up his daughter to get her up for school. And he finds that, that she has become entangled in this blanket and she's blue and cold to the touch. And she had been killed. Um, and he calls the police, the police come and it's pretty apparent that she had been the victim of a sexual assault. I mean, this is a 12 year old girl and she has semen on her body. And because the police couldn't find any uh, observable signs of forced entry, they presumed that there had, it had to have been somebody within the home who killed her. And because Billy was the only male in the home, he became their primary suspect. Um, and they subjected him to a brutal interrogation um, with threats about the death penalty, with lies about evidence, with false polygraph results um, until he finally uh, uh, agreed that he had killed his daughter and sexually assaulted her, okay? But there's this DNA evidence, right? So six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was, after Billy had been arrested, his name is splashed all over the front pages of the newspapers. Um, Children, um, you know, six weeks, the DNA test comes back and it matches to uh, a man named James Sanders. First of all, it excludes him. And then they put it into a database. And um, later on, before trial, before trial, it matches to a man named James Sanders. Now, who is James Sanders? James Sanders is an ex-con. He's an African-American man. North Carolina, who had just been released from prison. And in a like very short period, in a six-week period, when he had moved to, to Rock Hill, he had broken into homes, sexually assaulted women, attempted to kill these women. Um, and we're talking about four or five sexual assaults 
all in the same area geographically of where Amanda Cope was. Um, and there's no evidence that Billy Wayne Cope knew James Sanders. There's no world in which these two people ever would have met. And so how does the police, how do the police reconcile the fact that James Sanders' DNA is on Amanda Cope? And they have this confession of Billy Wayne Cope, which doesn't mention James Sanders. They went to the jury in the deep South and they said to the jury, we can't prove that these two men ever met each other, but they must have met each other. They had to have conspired to kill Amanda. Billy Wayne Cope let James Sanders into his house and allowed him to have his way with his 12-year-old daughter. And there was a conspiracy between these two men, and therefore they're both guilty of this crime. And the jury accepted it. And, you know, again, I didn't represent Billy at trial, although I was consulting with his lawyers. I couldn't believe that this could happen in the, in the you know, in the 21st century. I couldn't believe that without any evidence, they could convict him of murdering and raping his own daughter and then conspiring essentially to pimp her out to this sick and twisted serial predator um, named James Sanders. So we got, I put together one of the best teams of lawyers that I, that I could find to represent him on appeal. I was part of it. Um, a great lawyer named David Bruck a death penalty lawyer was part of it. And the case was argued before the higher courts and we lost on a three to two vote. And I, I, you know, and then we continued to fight for Billy and he died. He just woke up one day in prison. He died. He died of a, a massive heart attack. Oh, awesome. um, and um, I, I don't even know what to say about it. It just pains me to think that, that this, man could have been convicted of murdering and raping his daughter when the physical evidence, the pattern and the modus operandi of James Sanders proved to a certainty that he committed this crime and he committed the wrong. That's terrible. People can, break, people can break into a house with a credit card. You know, you don't always leave signs of forced entry when you break into a house that's what burglars do you know they know how to get into houses without breaking glass or shattering locks and that house was not a secure house uh, he came in in the middle of the night and he killed this young girl and he escaped without being apprehended and it was only after he had done the same thing sexually assaulting other women that he was finally caught and linked. And instead of walking away from Billy Wayne Cope, like any decent, reasonable prosecutor and law enforcement officer should have done, instead of saying, I'm sorry, your confession is false. This is the person who did it. They doubled down and got convictions against both of them. And, uh, say about it. It's confirmation bias. Um, 
you know, in the most extreme. And to me, it's, it, it, it's evil. It, it yeah. borders on evil. Yeah. That's so sad. And so, I, used to get letter, I used to get letters from him, especially around this time of the year, you know, around the holidays. He would always send me a Christmas card. He would always tell me to keep up the fight. Um, he was very thankful for us. And you know what? I failed him. You know, I mean, we did everything we could and, and uh, took his case, just like Brendan's case. We took his case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. We thought they were going to accept the case. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to accept the case. And uh, there were still legal proceedings in effect at the time. But, um, you know, I just, I, I just, uh, I miss those letters around the holidays. How do you feel you failed him? You know, I just, I just. I just think that maybe, maybe some, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I think I failed him because I didn't get him out of prison and because his innocence was so obvious. And, and um, you know, I, I just thought it was so, it was so, it would be so clear to any rational, reasonable thinking person that they got the wrong guy. And, Maybe there was some something about the way we argued the case or, or didn't argue the case. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Well, you know, you also didn't have the kind of the luck of the West Memphis Three where, you know, certain cases just get a celebrity on board or two or three or four, and then it becomes national. And then it becomes different because then it becomes people rallying. So, you know, it's it's just an example of the fact that not everybody gets that. And some people are, you know, in a small corner of the universe. I didn't hear of him. There's you a know? brilliant, there's a brilliant dateline episode on the case. Really? Yeah, that we we worked with a producer named Carol Gable. She's a friend and she just did a brilliant job with the case. And we did get national attention for his oh. plight. But but Billy, you know, Billy was not somebody who people, you know, he was not, um, I don't know how to say this. He was not photogenic. He was. He's not a Damian he, Nichols. No, he was not obese. He was not, arti he was obese. He was not articulate. You know, he, yeah. he, he was not a, he was in no way, uh, he was a flawed individual like we all were. Uh, and because of this sort of child sexual abuse angle to this, yeah. I think nobody was going to gravitate to him yeah. in the same way that they do to other people. Yeah. There is, you know, grief, but it's like you're describing how powerful the system is a confirmation bias. And, and I wanna ask you about Tommy Ward, you know, even um, how fierce a prosecution can be, even in the face of evidence, almost as if they really don't care. And they don't care about the human life 
of this person who's been demonized and dehumanized. So, you know, I, it's, I mean, it's really sad. It's really, really sad. Um, so let me talk to you about something else that's sad in the case of Tommy Ward. Now, Tommy Ward is, I believe he's photogenic. And, you know, he is the subject of uh, the book by John Grisham. But um, he's done over 35 years in prison. Yeah, and he was sent, you know, he and his, his, uh, his co-defendant, Carl Fontenot, um, either one or both of them were on death row for some period of time as well um, for a murder that it's pretty clear they didn't commit. I mean, there's a, there's a book even before John Grisham's book, it's one of the best books ever written on wrongful convictions called Dreams of Ada. Yeah. Ada, Oklahoma is the area where the, this crime took place. And, and I think it was written by a man named Robert Miller, although I'm not sure about his first name. Um, that is, you know, so, so Tommy's case has gotten a lot of public attention, but he was convicted in Oklahoma and there was a prosecutor in that county who was legendary for his power and uh, influence, and he put a lot of people on death row, and the resistance to Tommy and Carl's case has been extreme, even with the support of a lot of luminaries. Um, and thank God it didn't happen, but, you know, Carl was finally released, um, but Tommy could have very easily died in prison during COVID. I mean, he he got COVID and, um, yeah. you know, I think that I'm still hopeful. It's not a case that I'm directly involved in. My colleague, Greg Swigert is deeply involved in it and he's been leading a team of lawyers. Um, and I'm hopeful that he will be freed one day. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's the system doesn't like to admit that, that it was wrong. And the system means, you know, plot prosecutors, it means police officers, it means judges. That's who I'm talking about. They, nobody likes to step up and say, I was wrong. You know, I mean, it's interesting because it's almost an American dynamic of exceptionalism. You know, it's hard for this country to apologize, you know, to apologize, to do reparations, to say the war was a mistake, to 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 close Guantanamo, you know, to you know, to really uh, admit and be sorry for. The other thing is, you know, my perception is that in a case like Tommy Ward, it feels like there's almost a kind of spite, you know, like he wins an appeal. I mean, he it seems like he won an appeal, but then the state appeals or the prosecution appeals, and they don't want him free during the appeal. Why? Exactly. You know, why? You know, put an ankle bracelet on him. Yeah. You know, Where's he going to go? Know, um, he's not going to hurt anybody and he's not going to kill anybody. But, you know, same thing happened with Brendan. I mean, we got an order from a federal judge right. that Brendan Dassey should be released while his appeals play out. Right. And, Brendan wasn't going to hurt anybody. I don't think anybody on the prosecution team 
even thought he was going to hurt anybody. Ken Kratz, in his book, even wrote that he couldn't imagine Brendan ever hurting anybody else. You know, and that, you know, according to Ken, it was only because he came under his uncle's influence that that Brendan even got involved in this. That's Ken Kratz. I don't I don't buy that narrative. But Brendan Dassey has has had an absolutely perfect record of behavior before this. And since this, he's not going to hurt anybody. Um, but and so they fought and were prevented him from going home for Thanksgiving. And he's still locked up to this day. It's like gross. So on a different note, um, what is your connection with the Innocence Project? In the history of projects that have been working on innocence-related cases in the United States, okay, the first project was a group out of Princeton, New Jersey called Centurion Ministries. Okay, hmm. They um, are still afoot today and still doing remarkable work. Um, they came um, to be sometime in, I believe, the, the 1980s, um, before DNA evidence. They were working on cases to get people out of prison. The next generation was the Innocence Project, which was pioneered by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, two lawyers from New York City who really became experts in DNA evidence and the use of DNA evidence to exonerate innocent people. And so the Innocence Project was born in the early 1990s, okay? After the Innocence Project was born and became a highly successful project in the early 1990s, there was a new wave of innocence organizations around the country. The Center on Wrongful Convictions was part of that second wave. We were one of the you know, early projects to begin to investigate cases of wrongful convictions using DNA, but not only DNA, doing complete reinvestigations of cases. And since that second wave, which included projects from the state of Washington, the state of California, um, North Carolina, and others, you know, there became innocence projects that pretty much cover the geographic area of the entire United States now uh, and around the world. There are projects in Mexico, in South America, in, in Europe. And so we are part of a network of innocence organizations. Mm -hmm. um, that sometimes get labeled as innocence projects. But sometimes you work together, right? We do. In fact, you know, we've worked on many cases together with not only the, the Innocence Project in New York, but with other projects around the country. You know, we are a national project. So we only we don't only take cases in Illinois. And when we get asked to work on cases outside of Illinois, we often partner with the Innocence Project. We've had several exonerations, New York exonerations, where we partnered with the, the Innocence Project. I know that Peter Newfeld had said that Chicago was the, what did he say? Kind he said of, it was the, you know, I don't remember if it was me or one of my colleagues or in conversation with uh, 
somebody on 60 Minutes who dubbed it the false confession capital. But, but Peter said that Chicago is to false confessions what Cooperstown is to the Hall of Fame, right? Chicago is the, you know, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world when it comes to false confessions. We've had hundreds of them. Um, Do you have an idea about why that is? I think that in Chicago, um, particularly in the early 1990s, late 80s, when the homicide rates skyrocketed as, as crack cocaine hit the streets of our city and, and people were killed in gang crossfire and there were a lot of other cocaine-related deaths. Um, the police department got overwhelmed. They were, the detective divisions had too many cases on the whiteboard that were unsolved. And the way that they solved those cases quickly was through confessions. And many of those confessions were proven to be false, especially when DNA evidence started to come out a few years later. And so there's a culture in Chicago that is probably stronger than anywhere else in the country, although it's certainly strong in Philadelphia and New York and other big cities, that detectives who close out cases with confessions are the closers. They're the most respected of all the people in the police department. And you no know, confessions are just like any other evidence. They're only as good as the evidence which corroborates it, you know? Right. And we've just become, in Chicago, we just became so enamored with confessions that we, we closed so many of these murder cases uh, when, in fact, we closed them by wrongfully convicting people. You know, I said when we were talking about Tommy Ward, you know, onto something else, but I just want to go back to him for a second. You know, I kind of want to say to him uh, and to Brendan Dassey, you know, my own heart goes out to you guys. And I hope, Steve, that with your work and with the work of other people, something happens with these people so that, you know, they get out before they die in prison or before they, everybody in their family is not available to them? You know, I guess the only thing I'll add is, is that the best way to get folks out is through the courts and through judges that apply the law correctly and rationally to effectuate justice. The courts sometimes don't perform that function. Sometimes, for whatever reason, judges don't effectuate justice. Uh, and there's a fail-safe remedy. It's a remedy that's not necessarily a complete exoneration, but it can get these people out of prison who are innocent. And, and it's the power of clemency. It's the ability of governors to commute sentences in these questionable cases um, and to effectuate justice, if you will, where the courts, for whatever reason, are unable or unwilling to do so. And that's the decision of one person. That's the decision of a governor. And some governors have been very generous 
with their clemency grants. Uh, and some have been very frugal. And, you know, all I would say is during this time of year, the holiday time of year, which is a time of year where governors frequently are debating and considering clemency petitions, that they open up their hearts and, and that they look at these cases and that they right these wrongs. Um, that's what they're elected to do. It's an extraordinary power of executive grace, but they should use it and use it more frequently. So can mental health professionals volunteer or step up to help in, in your work? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, when our clients finally do get out of prison, you know, they're, uh, they're uh, often in, in terrible shape yeah. mentally. They need people to talk to. They need therapy. They need to process what happened to them. And they need help in trying to figure out how to navigate a world that is completely changed yeah. In, yeah. in 25 years. And, you know, we could definitely use help with therapists who would donate some of their time to helping these people get back on their feet. We work with mental health professionals a lot in helping to get judges and juries to understand the phenomenon of false confessions. You know, what is it about this suspect's personality that would make them particularly vulnerable to the kind of pressure that's brought to bear? So we hire them and use them as experts in our cases. But, um, you know, these folks, when they get out, are, are understandably damaged people. And that's where I think we could really use mental health experts is to, to work with them, to try to help them rebuild their lives. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a very worthy cause. You know, New York in particular, well, I was aware of, asked people to donate their time during COVID. But I think, you know, during COVID, after COVID, after anything, uh, I second your emotion and you're available. I mean, people who, who want to do this, where can they go on the internet? Well, you know, they can contact us at the Center on Wrongful Convictions. You know, uh, selecting a therapist is a very personal, Absolutely. obviously, choice. And, you know, I'm not sure that we're necessarily equipped to vet the, the therapists, but um, we certainly would be willing to, to try um, to do so if they're willing to donate their time. Well, okay. Um, so Tommy Ward and Brendan Dassey, all the best. And Steve Drizzen, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to finally meet you, to talk to you, and I, I really hope your podcast is a, a smashing success. Thanks you so much. You take care. Bye-bye.